Who loves a good story? I wish I had one. Patrick McAvoy is the one for the good stories. But I do love a good story. And one of the favorite things, there's lots of favorite things about being a dad. But at this stage in the life of my kids, I really like bedtime. Uh, I like bedtime because Corey and I take turns reading books to the kids. And so sometimes we'll share a book that meant a lot to us when we were kids. Um, Sometimes we'll just plow through the classics, Laura Ingalls Wilder or Secret Garden or any of these books. Sometimes the kids pick the story. But whatever it is, we love a good story. And one of the things that, that makes a great story in my book is something that, you know, that's got to connect with me intellectually, but also connect with me emotionally and spiritually. And there's so many good children's books that do that. Um, thinking about story, though, has made me think about all the different ways you can tell a story. Of course, there's literature, and we'd throw poetry and, and that kind of thing into that, that uh, arena. But there's also film and documentary, there's uh, folk music and hip-hop and all kinds of ways to tell stories. On Palm Sunday, today, we are going to encounter the story of Jesus. And I was praying through and, and studying and getting ready to preach this message. I kind of thought, you know, I've, I've preached this text before, uh, at least a few times in my life. Um, my main task is to tell the story of Jesus as Luke tells the story in this setting and, uh, you know, to, to pull out the salient points for the congregation and some application and we'll go home. Yay, Palm Sunday. But as I, as I started to study deeper, I, I, I saw the text from a little bit different angle. And if you look closely at the story, you realize that, yes, Luke is telling us the story of Palm Sunday, but Jesus is actually telling us a story. And he's not doing this storytelling with photos or a documentary or a hip-hop song. I'd love to hear Jesus rap, but that is not what he was doing. Instead, Jesus is telling us a story with his actions, with his very, the way he lives his life. And his actions are telling us who he is, and, and he's inviting us through those actions to respond to him. Think about it. Jesus does not do anything by accident, the way he's described in the Bible. You know, here's an example. Jesus heals a lot of people, doesn't he? I mean, if you read the Gospels, he's always healing someone or casting out demons besides his teaching ministry. But if we look closely at those healings, there are a few things that stand out. The first thing to me that stands out is of all the healings Jesus does, you never hear him healing cancer or malaria or any number of major diseases that existed in the time of Christ. Judging by the fact that Jesus was present at creation and, uh, you know, all things were made for him and through him, judging by the fact that he could raise Lazarus from the dead after the dude was dead in a tomb for four days, judging by the fact that Jesus could do things like walk on water and himself be raised from the dead after three days in a tomb, I'm guessing Jesus could probably cure cancer and malaria, and other things. But he doesn't do that, at least not that we know of in the scriptures. Which leads me to the second observation, the healings that Jesus did perform. He's constantly healing blindness, and deafness, and muteness, those three things. He restored lame people so they could walk. That's one of the things he does over and over again. And he's constantly um, healing lepers, So that they, A, are cured of leprosy, but also uh, introduced back into society as a contributing, welcomed member. And he's forgiving sins, the ailment of, uh, of sin, and he's casting out demons. So he's doing those things. Interesting. Why is he doing those things and not the other things? Well, because the prophets spoke 
of a, of a rescuer, of a messiah, of a king who would come and do some specific things. Particularly, he would do the things described in Isaiah 31 and Isaiah, or Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. He would restore sight to the blind and mobility to the lame and cleanse lepers and heal the deaf and raise the dead. Jesus healed people. Don't get me wrong. He healed people because he loved them. That's for sure. But there's more to it than that. He healed those particular ailments, not because other ailments weren't important, but because he's trying to make a statement with his actions. He's telling a story. And what is that statement? He's like, guess what? In me, in the things that I'm doing, in the person that I am, I am the fulfillment of what those prophets were talking about. I am the coming rescuer. I am the coming king. I am the Messiah. Nathaniel read the story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, the traditional Palm Sunday text. And what we're going to do is go back through that text piece by piece like detectives. Just put your double hat on and your, get your magnifying glass out. We're going to pay attention to the intentional things that Jesus does with his actions. And we're going to see how those actions amplify his message. Okay? Uh, we better pray. Lord, thank you for your servant Luke who recorded for us painstakingly the life of Jesus. Thank you for motivating him, for his benefactor, Theophilus. Thank you for uh, his uh, attention to detail, how Luke would go interview people, eyewitnesses of Jesus, to give us this text. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for being so intentional with your life for not just giving words about you, but giving us meaningful action. Help us, Holy Spirit. Help us as we observe what Jesus did and the way he lived and what he said. Help us to hear what it is he's saying to us. Amen. I want to encourage you, for, at least for this first part of the message, when we're sleuthing through this material, to open up your pew Bible it's one of those paperback Bibles in the pew, and it's on page 1053, 1053. The first action of note is that Jesus stopped at the Mount of Olives. Seems like a nice place to stop, nice little olive grove, but it's no accident that Jesus stops there before entering Jerusalem. If we put our detective hats on, we ask the question, where have we seen this before? Why this detail about Jesus stopping at the Mount of Olives? In fact, in Matthew's gospel, the same story, Jesus stops on the Mount of Olives. Well, I think it's partly because of Zechariah 14.4. There's a prophecy about God's deliverance. Listen to what the text says. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And then in Zechariah 14.9, it says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. So this promised king, this promised deliverer is supposed to come to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Okay, small detail you say. That's what I would say too. I wouldn't draw too much conclusion from that. But let's keep going in the story. Jesus then, from the Mount of Olives, sends out two of his disciples to a village where they're to find a colt tied, uh, tied up on which... No one is, has ever ridden yet. And they're to bring this colt to Jesus, and if the owner asks about it, they're to say, hey, the Lord has need of it. 
Now, as detectives in the 21st century, we might find it odd that a person could just go take someone's colt, in this case, the colt of a donkey, and might even seem more odd that if the owner comes out, all they're supposed to say is, the Lord has need of it. Like, can you imagine someone coming to your house and taking your car? They're getting into your car now, and you're like, what the? And, and they say, well, the Lord has need of it. You're like, oh yeah, sure, no problem. You're crazy, right? <laughs> that's, that's, that sounds insane. But believe it or not, even though that sounds outrageous to us, it was pretty normal in the ancient world. Not, not stealing people's stuff, but any royalty, any respected dignitary, or any rabbi could borrow or commandeer a person's livestock for personal use. They, would, they could borrow it. It was just a common custom. That's the part that sounded weird to me when I read this text, but that's not the part that is weird in the text. So l- let, me, let me continue on. The strangest thing is all of this detail about the cult and tying it and untying it. In a course of three or four verses, this cult is mentioned four times, and loosing it or tying it and untying it is mentioned four times. That's a lot of repetition, especially for the Bible. You don't get that much detail in the Bible about other stuff. Like, who's the Bible about, would we say as Christians? It's about Jesus, right? That's the Sunday school answer. It's about Jesus. Um, Does the Bible anywhere say what Jesus looked like? Or how tall he was? Or the color of his hair or his eyes? The the quality or tonality of his voice? We know nothing about that stuff. We we know he likes wine. That's about all. But we know the important things about him, but not all these little details. So why? We have to ask ourselves, why all this detail about this cult and tying it and untying it? Well, let's start with the cult. Jesus had walked for days and days over dusty, dangerous roads on his way to Jerusalem. Now he's a mile outside of Jerusalem. Do we really think, do we really think, I've made it this far, but I'm so tired, I can't go this final mile, I need a colt to ride on. No. He chooses to ride on this colt of a donkey to make a statement about his identity He's doing exactly what a king would do. And in fact, he's doing what the promised king would do when we read Zechariah 9.9. Listen to that text. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea. Jesus is making a deliberate choice to stop a mile outside of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives so he can then enter the city riding on the colt of a donkey. His actions are a declaration. They're telling a story that he's the fulfillment of what the prophets were talking about. And the tying and untying, have we heard this before? It may not be one of the texts that jumps off of your mind, but I'll cheat. I studied. That's what I do, right? So Genesis 49, (laughs) the patriarch Jacob is blessing all of his many sons, right? And he gets to Judah, and he promises that one day Judah's descendants, which would be David and then Jesus, would tie his donkey's colt to a choice vine, which is a metaphor for Israel, this tying and untying. Israel's ultimate ruler and savior would come from the line of Judah, 
And David came from the line of Judah, which means Jesus is now making a statement about who he is coming out of that line. Jesus makes a deliberate choice in emphasizing the tying and untying of the donkey. And again, his actions are declaring who he is. Okay, how many of you have seen Stranger Things, the, the TV show? Yeah, a couple of you? Yeah, if you, you've probably heard of it at least. It was an award-winning TV show. Um, and it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's a great show on its own, but it's made for people of my generation. It really is. It's, a, it's made for people who were brought up in the pop culture of the 80s. The characters, the references, the mood of the show, everything is a tip of the hat to the 80s. It, it's a completely original show, but there's obvious montages right out of E.T. and uh, Stand By Me and uh, you know, all kinds of uh, Goonies and other shows like that. The soundtrack is full of 80s tunes. And while all those 80s references are kind of fun to point out, you know, Corey and I enjoy going, oh, remember that or remember that? It, it's more than just novelty, though. They actually mean something in the show. And if you pay attention to the 80s references, you know or can, can kind of guess what's coming next. In a similar way, but more significant than the 80s even, Jesus' actions uh, are, are drawing on ancient prophecies. He's not just doing things so that I have fun stuff to talk about in my sermon. He does these things because they mean something. His stop at the top of the Mount of Olives, the colt of a donkey tying and untying, coats spread out on the road before him, crowds praising God, quoting Psalm 118 about the triumphant King of God. It's all a statement about who Jesus is. And what do they say? What do these actions of Jesus tell us? It says at least that Jesus is someone sent by God to usher in God's reign. And most of the scriptures that he's fulfilling put him squarely in the company of the Messiah, God's chosen deliverer. And there are a few references in this text that could even point to Jesus' divinity. What a start to Holy Week. We're not even to Good Friday yet or Easter, and we're already seeing this amazing stuff about Jesus. Here we came to Palm Sunday thinking it was about kids dancing and waving branches. And the same old story we talk about every year, but this old story has weight. It has implications on our lives, and it forces us, or it forced me to ask this question, so I'm going to ask you, if Jesus did things this way, and if his actions point to who he is, then what is the appropriate response from us? What does it mean for Jesus to be king of your life and my life? Well, the rest of this message is devoted to helping us answer that question. And the way we're going to do it is by looking at three perspectives. We're going to look at the viewpoint of the crowds and the viewpoint of the religious leaders and then Jesus' viewpoint. The crowds, let's start with them. They appear to be thrilled to have Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. They are starting to believe that this guy just might be the rescuer. And then you've got to ask yourself, what happened? Palm Sunday crowds declaring the king has come, putting their coats, waving palm branches, singing his praises. The same crowds that are treating Jesus like royalty on Sunday will turn on him by Friday. 
The same cheering crowds that see Jesus riding on a donkey that has never been ridden will become the same jeering crowds that put Jesus on a tomb that had never been occupied. It seems that the crowds took all of their hopes and all of their dreams about what a Messiah would be like, about what a king of Israel would be like, about what God's rescuer would be like, and they imported all of their ideas and they put them on Jesus. And they were so excited for their idea of a king that they failed to accept who this king really was. They wanted someone to overthrow Rome and make Israel a major player in the world. They wanted restoration of their rights and their way of life that Rome had taken away. But when Jesus allowed himself, allowed himself to be arrested, and when he didn't put up a fight or call the nation to war, when God didn't send fire from heaven to consume his enemies, they decided Jesus wasn't the one that they thought he should be. You've heard that before, I'm sure. And it's, it's got to be a warning to us, though. Jesus is who he is. He's who he's revealed to be in Scripture. He's the kind of king who is merciful and righteous. He teaches things like we've been studying weeks prior to this, to love your enemies and to turn your cheek. He commands us to care for the poor and says, as the church, you are the salt of the earth, and the light of the world. Over the centuries, the church has repeatedly made the mistake of aligning itself closely with government, with trying to form theocracies. And from these, we get things like the Spanish Inquisition and the Thirty Years' War and aspects of even Calvinist Geneva putting people to death for wrong theological views. And other forms of theocracy that have tended to be grabs for power in Jesus' name rather than allowing the way of Jesus to influence the way we live in community, the way that we live in a nation, whatever that nation is. And we should look at the crowds in this text and ask ourselves whether we are following Jesus for who he's revealed to be or are we only following if he acts the way we want him to act. We all love the Jesus that saves us by grace alone. We don't so much like the part where he's king over my free time and over my finances. We like the fact that, you know, somebody told us about Jesus or we're here for whatever reason. We don't like the fact, we're not real keen on telling other people about Jesus. (laughs) It's intimidating. So we, we need to learn something from the crowds. We can be just as fickle as they were. The second point of view we need to consider is that of the religious leaders. And first of all, we just need a quick history lesson, okay? A lesson on triumphal entries. Believe it or not, there's a lot, I mean a ton, written about ancient triumphal entries. Uh, When a conquering king or a royal dignitary came to a city, there was an expected protocol. Like, there's tons written about this. It's not just from one source or not. So the idea is this. A king's coming. You're coming to our city. What we're going to do is crowds would come out to welcome you, to sing your praises. And that's important for volume, you know, just to have a choir, <laughs> to have people shouting and doing all this stuff. But most importantly, the people that would come out would be dignitaries, 
social elite, and the priesthood. And they would come out to show you their allegiance and to welcome you with hospitality. And then everyone would bring you into the city square and you would go from there to the temple. Now, if you were in Rome, you would go to one of the Roman temples. If you were in a Greek place, you would go to whatever the governing god or goddess of that place was. But if you were in Jerusalem, of course, you would go to the temple of the living God. should also mention that we have dozens and dozens of examples of what happens when people don't receive dignitaries in that way. And it usually ended in the destruction of the city or the execution of key officials. Okay. So that's what was expected. And when people didn't act correctly, Judas Maccabeus, by the way, is one of the ones who completely razed the city because he, he took Jerusalem back and had this great celebration. That's where the palm branches actually come from, that custom. And then he went to some other towns in the greater Palestine area and one didn't receive him. And he's like, uh-uh, totally leveled the place. This is a common occurrence in the ancient world. Okay, so with that firmly in our minds, what's supposed to happen and what happens if you don't welcome someone well, let's remember, remember how Jesus is treated by the officials of the city. The text literally says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Remember, the disciples were all praising him. Rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the very stones will cry out. Notice in the Bible, too, there's several instances where the earth, the creation, cries out where people do the wrong thing, where people don't speak up. So Cain kills Abel. Where's your brother? <laughs> Am I my brother's keeper? Well, actually, the earth is crying out after drinking his blood. Okay? Uh, Habakkuk talks about stones crying out against the, the corrupt Israelite leaders. Anyway, this is a common theme. And uh, so, so Jesus is saying, hey, if I tell them to be quiet, the stones are going to cry out. It's time to praise. The king has come. The religious leaders would challenge Jesus. They don't recognize his claim to authority. And in the next section of the story, if you keep reading after this section, uh, Jesus is going to overturn the tables in the temple, and the leaders are going to challenge Jesus over and over again in public, which is a, an act of shame. Now, it's important to consider these responses of the Pharisees, because if we try and put ourselves in their sandals, we can easily understand their position. Think about it this way. They had a really good thing going. They were in the elite class. They had favor from Rome if they kept the peace of their community. And they had the esteem of the common folks, like the average layperson thought the Pharisees and the Sadducees were pretty cool. Not cool, holy, let's put it that way. They had a certain security in keeping things neat and tidy, and here comes a guy who is threatening their point of view. And if he really was the king and Messiah, then their position all of a sudden is in danger. To a degree, isn't that true for you and me as well? Actually, not just to a degree, that was kind of softening. It's true for you and me as well. If Jesus is king, like this text is saying, if he's the Messiah, if he's the son of God, then guess who's not in charge? This guy and you. Our agendas, if that is true, have to be submitted to him. 
Where are you resistant to the reign of Jesus in your life? Maybe it's your finances or your relationships. Maybe you're resistant to Jesus being king of your life in your coping mechanisms, in your workaholism, or in your escapism. Acknowledging the reign of Jesus in our lives, in the details of our lives, not just the going to church life. It's going to be uncomfortable, no doubt. That's a euphemism for it's really hard. It's a hostile takeover, as C.S. Lewis would say. Ask yourself, where are you resisting him? Okay, so we've looked at points of view of the crowds, and we looked at the point of view of the religious leaders. And we could probably find ourselves somewhere in that spectrum of fickle hearts to digging in our heels because we don't want him king over something. Or I'm actually in both camps, freely admit. No one likes to be told someone else has authority over them. After all, we live in a democracy and we kind of like it. But there's this perspective of Jesus that we haven't got to yet. And I want to argue that it's very good news, his perspective. Because Jesus is like no other king the world has ever produced. The world didn't produce Jesus. He came from above, says John. Consider the way of Jesus. If any other worldly king would have been treated the way Jesus was treated that day in Jerusalem, they would have leveled Jerusalem or at least executed those religious leaders. And they wouldn't have just done it because it was the right thing to do. From the writings that we have, Alexander the Great and others, they would have done it with spite and vengeance in their mind. It would have been done to teach a lesson. But not Jesus. What does Jesus do? He weeps over the city. He weeps over the city not because he has this sense of personal rejection so much as he knows that their rejection of him means inevitably that they're on a path towards death and destruction. He knows that by choosing nationalism and not him, by choosing the way of the sword and rebellion and not the way of peace, that it would go badly for them. And that's exactly what happened in 70 AD. One too many times, there was one too many rebellions from revolutionaries in Israel. And Rome said, enough is enough. We're taking out your heart. And it destroyed the temple. And people were scattered all over into the diaspora, into the known world. Jesus weeps over this reality he is not vengeful and spiteful. What a king. I'll tell you something else about this story and his actions. Is that Jesus is not a victim. This isn't a story of the time Jesus failed. He weeps, not because he feels rejected, but because he knows all too well that people who reject him suffer. It's on this Palm Sunday that the living drama of Holy Week is now set in motion. Jesus does more here than preach and weep. 
He's the king who sets his own course, makes a decision to come into Jerusalem knowing it's going to lead to his own demise. He's the one who comes to his own temple. The irony of ironies, the God of the universe is coming to his own temple. And he knows he's going to be rejected and eventually crucified by the people he came to save. And he did it intentionally. This isn't a mistake that he wandered into because he was a bad strategist. His actions of love and sacrifice for us give weight and authority to his words. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He is the salvation of the world. He is worthy of our worship and obedience because no one else does that for us. And so we find ourselves back at the question. If Jesus is king, this kind of compassionate, self-sacrificing king, then what is my response to him? I want to encourage you. I want to encourage me. I am with you. I am with you. I want to encourage us to trust him at a new level, to receive him at a new depth, to receive his love and forgiveness and to receive his lordship over us, trusting that even though it feels like we're dying to something comfortable, his way actually leads to real life, to abundant life. And that's the good news of this passage. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for being the kind of God and King who is more than just hot air, more than just words, more than just sitting safely at a distance telling us what to do. You literally entered into the horror of our situation. You willingly made yourself vulnerable to rejection and suffering and death for us. Lord, we confess our our defenses are always up. We have been jaded and broken by the world. Most worldly advice tells us not to trust, to look out for ourselves. And here we hear this message that is so counterintuitive, and yet it has the ring of truth. I even find us, Lord, wanting to believe this, but struggling to let go of all the aspects of our lives. And I pray by the power of your spirit that you would help us to trust you. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you that knowing the fickleness of our hearts, not only back in in this original story, but knowing the fickleness of the hearts in this building right now, you chose to go to the cross for us because we desperately need your forgiveness and new life. Help us to receive that love, Lord Jesus. Amen.